You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 11th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Live from Studio One here in London, this is Midori House on Monocle 24. I'm Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up on the show, Italy's Prime Minister stands up to his right-wing Interior Minister Matteo Salvini. Will this mark the start of a strengthening against the far right? Monocle's very own Paige Reynolds, Malcolm Chalchoglian and Chiara Rimella will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including British MEPs are told they'll get an extra two years' pay after the UK leaves the EU. We'll have a healthy moan about why some high-profile Brexiteers will continue to line their pockets long after the UK plunges into the unknown. Plus... fancy a night out dressed as a nun we examine the odd world of the sing-along movie screening that's all to come on midori house with me emma nelson And we are limbering our, up our vocal cords in preparation for a grand finale on today's midori house do Adopt the brace position, ladies and gentlemen, because my guests today are Monocle 24's very own Paige Reynolds, Melkin Chartoglian and Chiara Rimella. We begin in Italy, where it seems that the country's Prime Minister, Giuseppe Conte, has won back a little control of the country's direction when it comes to immigration. For months now, the far-right Interior Minister, Matteo Salvini, has dominated affairs. Only this week, he said he'd veto an EU deal that would make Italy take in a group of migrants who'd been stranded for two weeks on the Mediterranean Sea. Finally, it seems Giuseppe Conte has spoken out against Salvini. So is he part of a growing resistance to the far-right in Europe? Well, Chiara, let's, let's... hear from you first. What is it that has drawn everybody's attention to what happened this week between Conte and Salvini? I think it's a very interesting situation because when you think about Italian politics over the past few months, uh, you hardly ever hear Giuseppe Conte speaking, despite him being a prime minister. Much of the conversation goes on primarily between Salvini and the rest of the of Europe's leaders, but obviously also with the other vice prime minister, who's Luigi Di Maio. I think it's interesting that for the first time, or at least to my living memory, uh, Giuseppe Conte has made a point of making a decision without necessarily consulting Salvini. Uh, Salvini at the time was was a way uh, to a trip in Poland, of which I think we'll have more to say about later. So uh, what exactly was the decision that was made? Um, so um, Conte decided that 10 of the 49 migrants that had been stranded at sea would actually be eventually relocated into Italy. Uh, Salvini then moderated this decision by saying that they will come at no cost for, for the Italian state, so they will basically, their um, upkeep will have to be paid by the Valdesian church. Uh, so that's the compromise they managed to agree on at the end. Um, but everybody knows that this is a bit of a loss for Salvini because he's been adamant that no migrant was ever going to be taken by Italy again in a kind of situation like this. And it was something that happened this week, wasn't it, when uh, Salvini got into a row, uh, I think it was the Prime Minister of Malta, that he accused him of, uh, he accused the Maltese of, of reneging on a deal to take in uh, a, a group of migrants, um, when in actual fact it was part of a, a sort of a quid pro quo agreement that the, that the Maltese had agreed to take these people. And so had the Italians. And effectively, another country's leader was saying, Salvini, 
you're accusing us of doing something. Actually, it's you who, who's at fault yourself. Yes, I mean, the sparks are flying with Malta because Malta is the country that has allowed eventually for this ship to dock in, on its, on its, in its port. And, and Italy was always going to refuse for it to dock there. I think Salvini has always pushed very, very vehemently um, for the redistribution of migrants that do arrive into Italy. So he's trying to... He's constantly in the process of accusing the EU of not uh, being true to its own promises and, and making sure that those are effectively redistributed. And he contests the amount and numbers of those that have. Malcolm, we're looking at a Europe now which is very different to that of two, three years ago when the migrant crisis was the thing that dominated everything. The, the images on the television news and the policies that were coming out of um, each country were driven towards populism. And then look what happened. Yes, yeah, so... Um it feels to me like immigration was made the big question when we did have the the, the peak of the the migrant crisis, uh, and polit- right-wing politicians such as Salvini and say Victor Orban are still trying to ride off that wave. So they're trying to scare people into thinking that that is still the most pressing question uh, on the table, and they're riding on this uh, sort of uh, campaign of fear. So trying to sto- st- you know, stoke up the possibility uh, that there might be another migrant crisis, and they're trying to unite the country in that way, because what I think maybe what they've realized is, is that if they're, you know, without the, the promise of totally capping and suppressing immigration, their party has nothing else to promise to people. So having to stoke these fears continuously and, you know, try to inhabit the mind frame of a few years ago. It is an interesting thing about the idea of stoking fears. Now that the migrant crisis isn't what it was, we're seeing uh, more and more extreme views being peddled. And, Paige, interestingly, this week we saw um, anti-immigration far-right connections being made around Europe. No, indeed. And I think what Chiara just mentioned earlier about Salvini, um, Salvini uh, was invited to Warsaw earlier this week to to meet the Polish uh, chief uh, Kaczynski. Um, And I think we've got the European elections coming up and I think they're going to be kind of maybe the most sort of interesting European elections we've seen um, in a long time uh, because we're going to have this massive exodus of Europe- of UK MEPs. Um, so there's this sort of the, the centrist uh, kind of conservative grouping is going to be at a little bit of a loss. So you've still got the Franco-German alliance, but I think the reason that Kaczynski and Salvini met um, is to try and make this new Italo-Polish alliance, which is, which is what they've called it. Um, and, you know, Salvini uh, pledged to give Europe new blood, new strength, and new energy and quote to counter the Franco-German axis with an Italo-Polish axis and you know Orban's actually came out yesterday in a, in a rare TV broadcast and sort of also congratulated them for doing so so you know that again they're all sort of trying to back each other to see how they could sort of take a little piece of the power. Chiara what's the feeling in Italy that the way that the country's public image is being directed by the likes of Matteo Salvini is pushing it towards the likes of Hungary and Poland? Well, Matteo Salvini is enjoying incredible popularity in Italy. His party is now leading in the polls at about 30% and has managed to overtake the Movement for Stars, which, uh, when it came to voting uh, last year, had actually come out on top. So the Lega is extremely popular at the moment in Italy. Um, and for that reason, it's it has shaped the, the, the discourse in internal politics as well and is one of the reasons why all of the disagreements between 
between the different members of the alliance are actually happening with a view to the European elections and the movement of stars having to make gains against the Lega, um, ancient feuds are coming back up. The, the, Malcolm, the, the, the EU's got it wrong here, hasn't it? It's, it's, it's made a wrong call insofar as we've seen action being taken against Poland, we've seen threats against the Czech Republic, threats against Hungary for, for effectively you know, betraying the principles of the European Union. And yet, as a result, you, you see that playing directly into the populists' hands, into the anti-EU hands. And I read somewhere that there's a possibility that a quarter of MEPs could be anti-EU by the time that these European elections are done. Yes, but I think we must also be careful not to be too black and white about you know where MEPs stand on the question of the European Union. It's not, there, there is no iron curtain for want of a better, better phrase in Europe currently. It's not, you know, anti on the, on the right and pro you on the left. I think it'll be far more nuanced than that. But you're right. And also with the British MEPs possibly exiting and leaving about 10% of seats, uh, you know, up for grabs uh, come spring, um, that could bring in many anti- um, anti-European uh, MEPs and completely shift the balance of power. And, and one thing I would say specifically about the Salvini Kaczynski thing, and, and maybe I think this is to be said for a lot of these sort of far-right parties that are coming together uh, in the European elections, is that they do actually have some other quite big differences so whether they'll be able to sort of overcome those so for instance Salvini is is sort of a bit of a bedmate with Putin and obviously Poland is extremely anti-Russian so whether those things end up sort of uh, I don't know affecting their relationships ultimately will be interesting to see. It will. Um, well, a moment ago, Malcolm, you mentioned the ideas of the MEPs leaving uh, the European Union a little bit um, a little bit later on this year, and complaining about Europe has been one of the UK's favourite pastimes since, well, we've ever been part of it. And look where it got us. One of the biggest things that got Brexiteers blood boiling was the so-called Brussels gravy train. Members of the European Parliament are underworked, lack connection with the nations they represent, and above all, enjoy a hefty salary with the odd nice dinner thrown in too. Not for much longer you cry, the Brexit deadline is fast approaching and they all have to leave their offices. But but it's emerged that British MEPs will continue to leave, receive a salary for up to two years after the UK leaves the EU and that includes the Brexiteers. How do you feel about that, Paige? Oh, I mean, <laughs> big, sigh, big, sigh. big sigh. I mean, I think what's what's so uh, sort of almost ironic about this whole thing is that the peoples who are getting these massive payouts, for instance, such as Nigel Farage, um, who is one of the top 10 best paid MEPs because of his sort of outside earnings as well. Um, so the people that are doing the best out of this are the people that used sort of this very sort of bureaucratic structure, where there's all these sort of cosy MEPs sitting in Brussels and Strasbourg. They use this as a strategy for us to exit. And yet they're the ones that are going to be benefiting the most. I mean, it's it's pretty awful. Yeah, I isn't think it? I think I, I I sort of said something a little stronger than oh no when I found out about <laughs> it. Um, Kiara, what are your thoughts on it? Well, um, one of the things that I noticed from the British members' end of mandate, because this is the official name of the document that the uh, British MEPs have been given uh, in this occasion is that it includes a lot of other, uh, I guess, uh, rules and regulations for their acts of leaving. Um, so. 
I, I do quite enjoy the irony of them having to leave the voting card, EU pass, their Belgian special ID, their iPad laptop and their office keys, but they're allowed to keep the badge as a memento. That's lovely. <laughs> I think that's absolutely wonderful because, it, well, what would they do with the badge otherwise? It's, it's just one of those things that that's all we're going to let you have is a little badge. But, but Melkin, I mean, there, is there a more serious point to be made here than actually, if you are in anti-EU, the fact that they've got a system system like this in, in, in position, in place, says actually there's quite a lot about the European Union that's wrong here, isn't there? Well, I mean, I guess so, but I can't imagine the the other extreme where these MEPs leave and there are no rules at all and they don't get any money at all. There there has, there, you know, they have to get something at the end, seeing as, their, as their position has been terminated. Well, because, you know, a lot of them didn't vote to leave the EU. A lot of them are literally being kicked out of a job, um, so, which is the effective, you know, they're effectively getting a severance package. They've arguably had two years to fight since Article 50 was triggered. It's not as if it was a big shock. No, no, of course not. Uh, but I just feel that, you know, we have to be careful. We can't get this is a very easy subject to get up and arms and, you know, like, oh, 8,000 euros a month each, what, for two years? It actually come to 15 million pounds. If I if 50 million years, if I did my maths correctly, I may not have done. I only got a GCSE in maths. And, uh, and you know, that's actually not a huge amount of money when you look at the bigger picture. When we're talking in billions and billions and billions, that is not the most important thing. Look after the pennies and the pounds will look after themselves. <laughs> Go on. I, 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 I kind of agree with what you're saying, particularly about the MEPs that didn't specifically vote out. Having said that, I think someone like Nigel Farage being entitled to over 172,000 Euro. So, so okay, we're we going along the line here, Paige, that if you were a pro-European, we'll give you your money and we'll let you have your journey home. And what is it? I think it's 15 package boxes. You've got 15 removal bo- 15 boxes. 15 yeah. removal boxes. That's a lot. <laughs> Don't know. About half my kitchen cupboard. Um, but if you're Nigel Farage, it's a kick up the backside and, a, and, and being shoved under a Eurostar. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There should be discretion applied in this question. Ladies and gentlemen, if you ever work in a company and a lady called Paige Reynolds is in, in charge of human resources, just just watch your step. I say. I mean, what is the solution to this, Kira? I mean, add a little bit of common sense here, because yes, it is enough to make certain people's blood boil to know that the likes, you know, to know that the high-profile Brexiteers who are on something like one hundred and seventy thousand euros per year for whatever reason. Um, can be finding themselves receiving handsome payoffs for a good long time, long after the the catastrophe that they created is 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 well on is well underway. Well, I wish I could add common sense. I think the story <laughs> almost speaks for itself. Um, I do think that there's truth to what Malcolm says, in as much as um, the 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 rules and this this kind of severance severance package if you will applies to Brexit as it would do also if if a country was expelled from the EU and in that case you might argue that perhaps the MEPs would have less direct responsibility for um bringing the downturn of their own kind of membership of of the EU. So it's not necessarily that the rules of the EU are always bad, but in this case perhaps a little flexibility would have allowed to avoid a symbolically very inconvenient situation. Could more have been done, though, by the MEPs, the British MEPs in particular, to actually make the British people 
a little bit more aware of the work that they did. There was always mm. that feeling, wasn't there, that they they hopped on a train on a on the fr- su- you know, Sunday evening, Monday morning, to either Brussels or to Strasbourg, and we weren't a hundred percent sure what they what they did. I don't know anybody who can who can name their any their own MEP here. Uh, everybody's shaking their head, myself included. Um, and there is that sort of there was that real democratic deficit feeling, wasn't there, Malcolm? Yes, but I, I imagine that's probably the issue right across Europe. I don't think people sit in the Netherlands and, you know, get like a little statement at the end of the day being like, oh, this is what my MEP did today. I don't think anyone in Europe really knows what really happens there. Um, but again, we, we can't just we can't just blame Brussels and say, oh, you know, these MEPs, it's all their fault. They didn't tell us what happened. David Lamy gave a speech in Parliament yesterday and he very aptly said, don't blame, blame Brussels, blame us, the members of Parliament in Westminster, because we let you down. So new head of HR at the European Union, Paige Reynolds, what do you, what do, you do? What's the next um, sort of policy to be iterated by the European Union then to, in terms of how we can make things feel a little bit leaner, a little bit sharper, and indeed make us fall in love with Europe, with the European Parliament once again, if possible. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they definitely need some good press, um, and and there, there, does, there needs to be a lot more awareness. I mean, and it, it's such a shame that it took something like Brexit, I think, for everyone to suddenly realise, I, I hope Brussels as well, realise that, you know, I, I think that what they do is incredible, and I, I, I love the EU, I'm very sad to be leaving, but it just it doesn't trickle down very well and it, and it got people very angry and it got us into the situation we're in now so yeah i think awareness spreading um i think you know maybe i don't know meps having a lot more um to do with their communities um and and not just hanging out in, in strasbourg what and about you? all the time what about you well, i think it's interesting because uh, meps i think at least in the italian example which i always bring up because um it's it's one that I have insight into. Uh, feel disconnected from their own party of of belonging in their national context as well, and I think that link is is the link that needs to exist more. Um, Di Maio went into Brussels to have meetings about his alliances in the next in the next election and didn't even find time to meet with his own MEPs. I think that's where the fault line is. If you re instate the connection between the MPs and the MPs, then that communication perhaps can happen a bit more. You're nodding there, Malcolm. Well, yeah, because I think what a lot of people also forget is that you don't necessarily need to sit in the House of Commons to be a member of Parliament. Um, that, like Chiara said, there's just a massive disconnection between domestic politics and European politics. And yeah, I just think there does need to be more transparency. I wonder if we can get it changed. I wonder whether we can stop them getting that 8,000 euros a month. Get them to donate it to something. Shame them. Who knows? You're listening to Midori House here with me, Emma Nelson, Paige Reynolds, Malcolm Chachoglian and Chiara Rimella. Coming up, we look at the benefits of student life online and in person. And we enjoy a single longer night out at the movies. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore.
It's 8.19 here in London. If you've just joined us, this is Midori House with me, Emma Nelson. We're live from Studio One and joining me around the desk are Paige Reynolds, Melkin Chachoglian and Chiara Rimella. Now, more and more, our lives can be led from a laptop in a coffee shop. You can run your own business, write a novel, fall in and out of love. But can you get a proper education? Well, Harvard has lent its name to an online learning platform. The Harvard Business School Online will offer courses. Is that the way to teach a new generation, Melcon? Well, okay, so th- this story really interests me because I did once try to take a, a Cambridge online course in physics. It went really badly. I just basically didn't go through with it. But I think free online courses are fantastic. And, you know, if you go on Oxford, Cambridge, whatever website, Open University, you can do a course in anything, Shakespeare, physics, chemistry, etc. And it's fantastic because it makes education democratic. But my issue is that universities nowadays are run in, in sometimes like you know, American corporations. So it's all about making money. It's all about creating research, putting out papers, bam, bam, bam. There's a deadline for everything. The Harvard Business School, it, it used to be online. It used to be HBX. Now it's Harvard Business School Online. And one's saying it's great because it gives more credibility to the to the certificate that you get from there. But actually, if you go on their website, there's just so much sort of faff and marketing and corporate talk on there. I wanted to ask our managing editor, Tom Reynolds, for $1,500 to do uh, a degree in negotiation mastery, eight weeks. He said no, unfortunately. But, you know, negotiation mastery, management essentials, and they all cost extortionate amounts of money. Free courses are great because that's democratic education. But what's, what's on this website is very much for already rich people with already high qualifications who want to get further into their niche. Uh, it doesn't really solve anything. It just makes more money for the university. I wonder what the actual nuts and bolts of the course involve, though. Are you going to get a lecture? Are you going to get regular podcasts? Do you, you know, the qualification at the end of it will allow you to have the word Harvard at the end of your, you know, on, on your CV, which cannot be underestimated, can it, Paige? Yeah, and, and I do think, I mean, I think that these courses are expensive, but when you look at the cost of college education in the US, I read here courses that they offer last four to 12 weeks and they cost between $950 to $4,500. When you go to college in the States, you're looking at potentially like $50,000 and that's a huge debt and I think to be able to have a certificate from somewhere like Harvard for you know I don't know I don't know what the maths is but for much less of that price I, I don't see it as wholly bad. I think another another big element that we're forgetting here, aside from the economics, I mean, I, I agree that the access aspect is obviously fundamental in this in this question. But I think we need to remember also of the social aspect of going to university. Um, and as much as I have horrendous memories of my time in Hulse... At least you have memories. I remember <laughs> scant, <laughs> scant amount. Um, there is very, very good value, not only in the, the, the friendships that are made, but also, I think, in the learning of interacting in a social environment. I've, le- I've read somewhere that um, people have said that online courses uh, facilitate um, learning because they can be a less intimidating um, format for people and they encourage class participation because people feel less intimidated to speak up in a seminar. But in an online context, that to me reeks a lot of the same attitude that then leads people to leave incendiary comments underneath underneath articles because they feel like they can participate because not as much social judgment is going to be passed on them because there's that level of anonymity that allows you to do things. And it can be positive, but it can also, I think, encourage a series of, of attitudes that can can also have, you know, unpleasant 
side to them. There's that real need to make a human and emotional connection uh, in whatever shape or form when you're a student, isn't there? But but what I found interesting about it is you mentioned the issue of you not being able to go to university if you're you know not, you can't do these courses if you haven't got the money basically. No, it's Malcolm. Very but there there are issues. There are opportunities there though that that I think okay are, are pretty wonderful. You you read about um, women who haven't worked for a long time who stayed at home to have children and suddenly finding themselves educationally and socially disenfranchised now use your why not use your uh, your maternity leave to actually sit down and do a course on negotiation and do a bit of management essentials it is expensive but i sus- i suspect that harvard will probably let you let you have a bit of a bit of a discount if you ask them nicely and here i am asking and, and also, I think very specific to the to the business school format is, is a lot of these people getting MBAs or further courses. They still work. They're still running companies, and they're still so for them to have the flexibility of the online courses is just a lot better for time management. I think one thing I am really worried about, though, is the quality of the presentation. For the simple reason that I I did a a, um, a university course a few years ago, and a lot of it was in. This in the in the lecture theatre where you held on for dear life, wondering what on earth was being said to you, but then they decided to teach a couple of the modules either in podcast form or or or, or web, webinar form. The terrible thing was was that the academic was as dull as ditch water, and you sat there and this really really boring man told me something really really boring, and actually that put me off that subject so much and it it sort of chimes a little bit with what you said Chiara that you need human interaction to actually get it I think it's interesting because back at my university for example every lecture at least the the, the presentation of the lecture would be uploaded on on a web portal straight after lecture so potentially I could have taken my whole university degree without going I could have done it all from from home Um, but I remember each and every single one of us would say, you know, I have to go into uni today because otherwise the money that I'm paying or these few contact hours that I have will have paid, been paid in vain. So, uh, I, you know, I think you you could have done, but there was a point. And, and, and also there's a point to the physicality of learning as well. We've read increasingly that reading something on paper and not on a screen helps you, for example, with the actual, you know, metabolizing information. Um, perhaps there is something to obtaining information in a physical face-to-face form that's also helpful to the actual physical learning process not to mention the trip to the bar afterwards <laughs> finally it's confession time have you done it dressed as a member of queen as a transylvanian transvestite a nazi or in my case as a goat herd i speak of the single longer movie night the pressure valve for certain frustrated 40-something suburban housewives who simply need a few pints of warm chardonnay and a nun costume to soothe all her troubles away well now you too can belt out the greatest hits of queen in the comfort of the local cinema let's hear what you've got to sing though easy come easy go will you let me go bismillah no we will not let you go let him go bismillah we will not let you go let him go bismillah we will not let you go let me go we will not let you go Mia, mamma mia, mamma mia, let me go. Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me, for me, for me. And cue all the headbanging. That was Bohemian Rhapsody and the sound of Freddie Mercury. Well, the biopic Bohemian Rhapsody is going to be available in 750 movie theatres as a singer longer. Can you imagine a theatre full of people trying to hit that high note, Malcolm? Uh, you know what? 
literally just now changed my mind. Yes, I can. <laughs> yes, I can. So I, I don't like karaoke because you're very much in the limelight. But if you've had a few drinks, you're in the audience, the anonymity aspect comes in. And suddenly, you know, you're singing, Betty, you're having a great time. No one's looking at you because everyone's singing along. I can imagine that being quite nice. I can't think of anything worse than having his Freddie Mercury lookalike trying to bust my eardrums behind me. What about you, Paige? Yeah, but... Definitely not. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a big singer. I've never been to one, so there, there is an experiential uh, deficit I have here. I of, have, of, I of know. Not having been to a sing along, but I think particularly, you know, that note, that song, a lot of Queen's music, very testing, very difficult, and. Queen seems to suffer from this unique ailment of, of, of sort of being turned into these musical events. So, you know, obviously it's not a sing-along, but the We Will Rock You adaptation, which is perhaps the only musical I've heard of people walking out more than once, um, is is sort of, again, sort of repurposing music that I really, really loved into this sort of form of like a sort of naff format. And this, it's happening again. It's happening again. Naff, but the spirit of the crowd will surely carry you through, Kiara. Oh, absolutely. I was I, just before coming <laughs> on air actually Paige and I were having a little chinwag in the control room and I said what so singing along to Mamma Mia 2 in the cinema just on your own is is that not acceptable <laughs> <laughs> she didn't slow my team to agree without the format <laughs> so hang on just repeat that you actually have sung along to Mamma Mia in the cinema I think I probably hummed in an <laughs> audible way <laughs> well look um, you're going to have to do a little bit more humming now uh, because we come to the end of the programme uh, Paige Reynolds Malcolm Chachogli and Chiara Romella, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom here at Midori House. Thanks to our producers, Bill Luti, researchers Fernando Augusto Pacheco and May Lee Evans, and our studio manager, Kenya Scarlett. More music next and at 1900. It's a menu with Marcus Hippie, and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time on Monday. That's at 1800 London time. But we thought that the Monocle 24 Midori House sing-along sound of music team needed to be uh, brought together from one for one time this Friday afternoon. So we leave you, ladies and gentlemen, with so long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, goodbye. Adieu, adieu, to you and you and you. Come on, Melvin, you know you want to. So long, farewell, au revoir, auf Wiedersehen. I'd like to stay and taste my first champagne. Yes? No. <laughs> so long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, goodbye I leave and heave a sigh and say goodbye